Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. Amazon is on an at-all-cost transformation to drive costs out of their business, squeeze the most out of marketplaces, and automate as much of their relationships with their suppliers as possible. According to Martin Heubel, founder of Amazon Consultancy Consulters, that means they are leaving the pesky details of growing your category and your top-line and bottom-line growth to you. And that requires strategic shifts on your part over the next few years if you were to achieve profitable growth with Amazon. Armed with the results of a survey of 500 Amazon One P sellers, Martin joined Lauren Levac Gilbert and me to chart that course of strategic rethinking that must happen for success in this next decade of the digital shelf. Martin, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We're delighted to reconnect with you. Hi, Peter. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, Lauren. Um, it's a pleasure to be back. And uh, yeah, I hope you're doing well in uh, these uh, certainly dynamic times and very much looking forward to our session today. Yes. Speaking of which, so you recently conducted a survey of more than 500 first party Amazon vendors and a lot of insights came out of that. You know, we, you know, we, we live in this environment where we want to be achieving top line and bottom line growth at the same time towards profitable omni-channel businesses and and there's a lot of pressure on doing that. And Amazon is one of those really difficult channels to make that work, particularly as they keep moving the goalposts of what they expect from, from uh, suppliers in terms of investments and, and uh, the algorithms running the show over there. And so I we're delighted to kind of dig into you with the data, dig in with you, the, the data that you've gotten back and sort of what recommendations you have coming out of that. So what are some of the key takeaways that you got, first of all, out of that research? Yeah, sure. Um, so overall, the survey was conducted um, and targeted particularly for uh, vendor representatives, so those brands that have a direct first-party relationship with Amazon in order to temperature check really, okay, where do we stand? Um, what has um, the kind of economic impact had also for an influence over the decisions and the trade relationship with the online retailer? And um, interestingly, um, of course, the dynamics of uh, the wider economy that we're seeing, so high inflation rates, but also more value-oriented value shoppers were clearly coming through. And I think I'm not saying a big, mis uh, a big uh, secret here when uh, we're looking at the fact that, of course, a large proportion of those um, survey participants were highlighting their concerns around economic uncertainty, but also focusing a lot from a strategic angle on improving their process automation. So really focusing on operational improvements. More than 35% of stakeholders actually said that this is their top priority. Um, launching exclusive products on the channel was um, also something that was really top of mind. Uh, roughly a um, fifth of brands were saying that this is really the priority for the next 12 months. Um, whereas um, a lot of another third almost of um, participants said that they're looking to also set up a hybrid or uh, a wider channel selection uh, approach um, next to the first party vendor relationship, also through, for example, a third party seller central approach as well. And um, now the motivations behind that are quite interesting to dig into because what the survey also asked the participants was to really understand their primary challenges. 
encountered when they were trading with Amazon. And over 30% of participants actually said that the communication with Amazon is such a big headache for them nowadays. Um, even before the Amazon's pricing strategy and the competition that, competition that they may face on the marketplace itself, simply because when you're looking at the broader set of the economic dynamics that we've gone through and also the rounds and rounds of layoffs that Amazon has executed over the last year, we are now actually confronted with a reality where Amazon employs roughly 15% less of vendor managers and retail managers in its retail division which of course triggers down to the level of engagement that um, Amazon and its kind of stakeholders can even have with especially smaller and medium-sized brands. Um, but make no mistake, even large brands obviously struggle with um, the kind of stakeholder management on the other side of the also often negotiation table um, with vendor managers being really, really time constrained nowadays. So what are we doing with that? Well, in terms of these strategies, also to improve vendor margins going forward, um, a lot of survey participants actually said that they are focusing more on their portfolio mix. Um, over 20% said that this is top of their mind. Um, whereas, interestingly, um, almost an equal proportion of uh, vendor participants were saying that they are going to also unlist products that are not really profitable, either because they are not profitable for Amazon or also because they are just not profitable for them to maintain in their overall portfolio. And of course, this has implications for how end shoppers are going to find and shop the digital shelf on Amazon. Because if brands are front, right, and center, delisting products that customers are looking for, seeing and getting and purchasing in other channels, and they are no longer available on Amazon, um, then, of course, this also waters down the customer experience and the customer trust that Amazon has built over so many years um, by sometimes not even having adequate um, comparable products available. So we are really going into a time where the choices, the economic choices of brands um, are becoming much more stringent and much more tough in the way that they are being executed. Um, whereas, of course, um, operational process improvements um, were cited among survey participants um, as well. Um, but I think we are really seeing a shift towards mechanisms that improve bottom, the bottom line of brands as well as with Amazon now affecting more and more also the end customer. Can we revisit the, the exclusive piece a bit? So I feel like that's a strategy that more and more brands are adopting because then there's price protection across any of the other retailers if they're launching an exclusive on Amazon. Do you see that primarily as the driver to launch an exclusive on Amazon? Or is there another reason why that would be a, a big priority for a brand? Uh, I think it's we need to take a look at the, the macroeconomic factors here. Um, because if you're looking also at Nielsen data, uh, so Nielsen IQ is sending these out um, quite on a regular basis. They're looking at the actual um, consumer packaged goods unit price changes year over year. Um, and if you compare that to, for example, the US um, consumer price index, so a good proxy for the inflation rate that uh, shoppers are actually seeing, um, what you'll be seeing is that the CPG unit price increase year over year has outpaced most of the inflation rates over the last consecutive 12 to 24 months. And that really implies that a lot of the cost increases that a lot of brands have pushed through have certainly also translated into the market segment. And with Amazon being a price follower, are very likely also shown 
um, in the overall average selling price uplift um, for and across a lot of categories. Um, but what it also shows is really that these increases in terms of end shopper prices have significantly exceeded the general inflation rate um, from a consumer price index point of view. Um, so in general, what we are seeing is that it becomes more and more expensive for end shoppers to purchase their beloved products. At the same time, we're also entering a season, uh, the peak um, quarter, where we are facing more and more competition in the online space, right? I mean, Shane has launched uh, recently across multiple markets. We see new players like Timu entering the, the field, as well as TikTok Shop. And we are actually seeing that, of course, this impacts the overall price dynamics that uh, we're seeing reflected also in the overall pricing landscape going forward and that we can expect going forward. Um, so the challenge really becomes that if you are a brand that only carries products that are very comparable across different retailers and across different channels, of course, when you're working with new and emerging retailers, as well as Amazon, who adopt more of a price-following approach and price-follower strategy, you're very dependent on their choices and their requests for you to kind of increase their margin and thereby having to invest more on your behalf in order to ensure that you stay relevant in your category, you're getting the kind of visible shelf space um, that is equivalent to in-store placements um, on Amazon and co. So I would say the exclusivity of products and the launch of exclusive items allows brands to escape this trap almost where they have selection that is very much catered um, to all of their offline and online retailers. And if you're really thinking about it, most products that we sell today, today and that we are seeing on Amazon today um, and on other online platforms were originally designed for the physical shelf with the physical shopper in mind. So we inflated a lot of the packaging. Um, we made it larger, more colorful in order to appeal to the end shopper so that if a shopper goes into a store, he can kind of grab that product that appeals to them, even though the content of the package may be actually much smaller than this. Now, this is great in the offline world, not so great when you're shopping online because you're just increasing the costs in terms of the variable handling, storage and shipping costs um, that it takes for you to kind of get the product to the end shopper's doorstep. Um, exclusive products can attack that from two sides, one on the one end from a pricing point of view, um, because you are not as comparable with other retailers, which allows you to offer products at a maybe more relevant price point um, to end shoppers um, without having this constant high-low dynamic in the market segment. Um, on the other end, you're attacking also the kind of variable handling and shipping costs that are often not in the favor of the online channel by launching products in more online tailored um, packaging, uh, which reduces the overall costs for you to get that to the end shopper as well. So, Martin, we're really talking about a difficult economic environment with shifting strategies in order to get closer to those goals of achieving, you know, better top line and bottom line growth out of this and Amazon being at the center of that. You know, I, I think and correct me if if I'm wrong on this data point, but I think your survey found that almost 65 percent of vendors that responded said their trade negotiations with Amazon were challenging, time consuming and inefficient. Now, 
I would think <laughs> Amazon would want to do something like in terms of having good relationships with their suppliers. Are, is it at the point where Amazon really doesn't care like th- th- that they're not? Are, do you see any uh, hope on the horizon that Amazon is investing either through automation or through simplification or anything to make that relationship with their suppliers? And you know, negotiating is always going to be difficult. It's always going to be somewhat adversarial, but this sounds um, extraordinary. Um, and is that just the cost of doing business with Amazon? Yeah, I, I 100% relate to that question because I think everyone who sees this result is first and foremost stunned and cannot really believe why that relationship is um, kind of perceived like this, right? I mean, it's it's a staggering result to have the majority of brands saying that they don't really have a partnership-oriented relationship. Um, but if you look at the actual root causes, I think you're quickly also realizing that it's not necessarily only Amazon that is driving this perception, but it is also oftentimes the misunderstanding that we still have in our industry, what Amazon actually is, and that um, we need to work with the online retailer as a result of that slightly differently than we do with our offline retail partners, for example, and other strategic partners that really want to elevate the relationship. The uh, kind of symbolism or metaphor that I always use when describing Amazon is that we must stop thinking of it as the classical retail partner um, and instead think of it similar to a social media giant like Facebook, who also has, or Meta, who owns Facebook and Instagram, who gives you their platform in order to advertise and publish content in a certain predefined way. If you think about Amazon, it is really coming down to being a marketplace that does nothing else than simply to connect the existing demand for a brand in the market with the supply of USC manufacturer. And it elevates basically um, the connection between both ends. Um, that also means that we cannot expect Amazon to develop or innovate in our category really, because that is not necessarily their desire because they're really going after the low hanging fruit of uh, just connecting the demand that is already out there um, ordering products um, respectively from USC manufacturer, which is also why Amazon and annual trade negotiations will never commit to growth targets. They will only commit to growth ambitions if you as the brand are willing to invest enough into retail media, into price promotions, into onboarding new products. All of the things that are entirely in your ownership as the manufacturer or as the brand selling on Amazon and have little to do with what your buyer at Amazon can actually do for you. Um, Because when you're looking at the current economics um, climate, we've seen that Amazon puts an enhanced emphasis on process automation. We've seen that they are laying off people also in their retail division, which means that a reduced number of buyers are now having to deal with a similar or even higher number of brands on the other end, which can only mean an illogical consequence that they will have less and less time to cater to the needs and demands to those brands. Now, I would argue that a lot of these survey results reflect exactly this trend that we've been seeing over the last 12 to 24 months, where Amazon has really honed in on its profitability targets, um, squeezing out the margin of brands that are not very effective and also translating higher cost prices into the market segment, and thereby just not reordering certain products because Amazon says that is not sustainable for us. And on the flip side, doesn't give brands any other way out to kind of promise more growth in exchange for their higher investments. And instead, just kind of acts as the typical marketplace retailer who says, look, 
if you're more uh, investing more and you're driving growth, then we are happy to facilitate that with more orders. Um, but right now we're kind of focusing on the very lean inventory management um, because the pandemic times are over. You have more inventory now. Global supply chains are not under as vast of a pressure as they were before. So thereby we are also transferring the risk of inventory ownership away from us again and towards USC brand. And we will only order for two or four weeks time and weeks of coverage in order to cater to the existing customer demand. But we are not going to place any large bets. And I think this is really what brands mean when they're also highlighting this challenging partnership, because oftentimes we are very, from a brand's perspective, we are very creative and strategic partnership oriented. And we want our vendor managers to partner with us and to reach their hand in order to kind of find solutions together. But um, that also completely ignores the reality in which Amazon operates and where they kind of say, we have it figured out, we use machine learning, we use automation, we use AI, if you want to add this uh, term into the mix as well. Okay. Um, so this is why we are not necessarily willing to go above and beyond because we are streamlining our business and we are going to continue that over the foreseeable future. So Martin, oh. What did that mean for brands? I mean, to your point about they want to have strategic partners, they want to work with Amazon like they would work with other retailers and, and work together. What do these trends mean for brands working on Amazon? How should they be treating them? What tactics should they be thinking about or strategies they should be thinking about to really be profitable on Amazon and, and have a working relationship? I'm going to air quote that rather than strategic so that they can be successful. 100%. Look, when we look at Amazon, not as the classical retailer, but as a marketplace retailer and online platform, as it actually is, um, and we are looking at the recent trends, um, I mean, just think about it. Amazon has gone undergone so many changes. It has conducted a corporate restructuring where in Europe it has consolidated its vendor management at a European level. So you don't have individual buyers in the markets anymore. In the US, it has localized its uh, warehousing system. So it stores products now much closer to the end shopper, which also means that the operational processes um, as part of the corporate restructure have um, quite been impacted. We see a higher automation focus when it comes to forecasting, order management, the catalog management, where Amazon doesn't do much manually anymore. And we also see that Amazon continues its organizational cost reduction, meaning the headcount reductions that we are seeing they are offshoring a lot of these support functions such as the Amazon vendor service now towards Eastern Europe or India where labor costs are generally lower than in North America or also in Europe. Um, and that really means that what is really happening here is that there is a silent transfer um, of process ownership and resource requirements away from Amazon towards the vendors who all of a sudden have to own commercial processes. Um, such as they need to manage their portfolio, their catalog um, more holistically. They need to also manage advertising, retail media activations. Um, they need to own the operational processes when it comes to their supply chain. They would need to be proactive if they want to create cost reductions here and automate through, for example, an EDI order processing setup. And they need to do the forecasting themselves. And then I haven't even talked about the financial processes in order to stay on top of all of these chargebacks, shortages, unpaid invoices, and so on. And that means that we as brands really need to realign our resources in order to avoid overstuffing ourselves and the underutilization of automation. 
because if you're just adding more headcount in order to stay on top of all of these processes, um, that also inflates your hidden cost centers that come all below your, your cogs in the, in the P&L when you look like for like at Amazon versus other retailers. Um, so to really answer your question, I think it is first and foremost to become really aware that this process ownership transfer is happening, that it is silent, and that you need to really audit your teams internally to understand what are they doing today compared to what are they doing or what have they done a year or two years ago to really capture where the biggest amount of manual effort sits currently in your organization and then to either create internal mechanisms to automate these as much as possible or to outsource and offshore these functions to a certain extent yourself through, for example, external service providers so that you keep your operating costs to serving this online retailer that becomes more complex by the day as low as possible. Gosh, I think that this this conversation we're having right now is so important. That mind shift the, and and identifying that a shift has in fact happened because it's sort of, as, as always with Amazon, it just seems like they keep moving the chains. But in fact, when you stand back, it sounds like and look at what they've been doing over the past several months, it does have a thematic thing, which is we're kind of, we're we're making our business as turnkey as possible to achieve the best results at the lowest cost more than we ever have in our past. And uh, and they're getting serious about their profitability. And so that ownership shift that you talked about is putting largely the burden on suppliers to sort of, okay, you figure out your business, just, you know, we'll send you orders and you send us stuff. That's I don't know. That, that's sort of, to me, it's what we talk often about sort of the first decade of the digital shelf where everyone's sort of figuring out, all right, how are we going to do this? Let's get some people in here. Let's try some stuff. Let's keep going. And then Amazon in, in some ways was doing a lot of the same, you know, maybe a bit of a generation earlier. But now we're in this next decade where so much of this is going to be squeezing all of the air out of process not hiring more people and getting better performance with every exposure to a consumer on the digital shelf and getting more at bats as a sum up that does that resonate with you did, did i sort of does that make sense yeah absolutely and it's exactly that and it really calls us as brands and manufacturers to rethink how we engage with such a complex customer because if all of the growth levers really sit on our side and we no longer ask our vendor managers for advice on how we can grow more, um, but realize that we have all of the tools at our disposal already. And even if Amazon doesn't offer them us, we can certainly use um, tools that are out there to kind of achieve exactly that analysis or to achieve that desired outcome and to manage the business more effectively. Then this also gives us a good understanding of whether we should actually invest more into that retailer or whether we need to start shifting the discussions away from the traditional annual vendor negotiations that Amazon still wants to impose on us to invest more in automated marketing or certain other investments where we may not see any dedicated and revenue attributable growth impact from them or any return on invest in general. And once you're starting to go into that direction, you quickly realize that if you're zooming out a little bit, and you look at your profit margins today, 
that you have with Amazon and the ones that you're planning to have in 2028 or 2030, depending on how long your financial planning horizon is, you very quickly will not get to the desired uh, outcome when you're just involving your sales department um, because you can only bridge so much so your margin uh, ambitions um, when you're launching new products, when you're negotiating better terms and when you're increasing your cost prices. You also very quickly need to bring in your media and marketing and activation teams, uh, your shopper inside teams, but also your logistics department yeah. in order to really create the plans that in a sophisticated way in an almost a 360 degree angle, look at the business and see and evaluate where are actually the cost savings that we will have to engage in and what are the discussions that we proactively need to put on the table when we are engaging with our buyers at Amazon or when we have top to top or three-year joint business plannings uh, with this online retailer. And I still see this not being exploited as much as we need to in today's age because there is still the notion, um, especially in multinational organizations, but also in small to medium-sized vendor brands, that the sales department is solely responsible for achieving the set profitability targets um, and uh, media and marketing are just kind of the um, kind of functions that drive a little bit of incremental growth, growth on top of what can be achieved through price promotions. And I think this is really the old way of thinking, the new way of thinking that we need to shift slowly but surely towards to is um, to really bring on board uh, sales, media and logistics departments, ideally also your finance department, all into one room and to really create integrated profitability strategies that bring us towards our ambitions um, over the next five to 10 years. And to me, that shouts out for C-suite leadership. Like when you're talking about bringing all of those people into a room to figure out an overall set of adjustments that can be made to lower costs and increase production, you, that can't be done between sort of peers at the at the mid-level. It requires C-suite attention. And I think that feels like the shift that needs to happen. And as so often it falls to our listeners to be the ones to try and and poke for that C-suite level involvement to make it happen because they are at the leading edge of understanding, thanks to people like you and their own experience, what's coming down the pike over the next several years. Absolutely. And look, I mean, if you're not changing it, then you will get when growing more frustrated over the years. And this is already coming through very well in these survey results. Um, and of course, I'll conduct it next year again to see, okay, is the temperature still at this level or has it improved slightly? But I think the, the biggest challenge and the biggest mistake I still see is that um, at a functional level, at senior management level, these discussions are they are trying to obviously elevate them. But what you will quickly see is, of course, that as soon as you're talking about the complexities of uh, the individual P&L owners um, that have the sales part or the media part um, as, as an ownership attributed to them, it's very hard to convince these stakeholders to give up their responsibility or to integrate that into other functions. So you're absolutely right, Peter. You need to kind of go up the, the, the levels and to ensure that there's also joint commitment from all of these um, senior decision makers to kind of drive forward a plan and a strategy that is really mutually integrated. Um, and it really comes down to showcasing um, how online will, and Amazon in particular, will kind of continue to grow and um, what contribution these online retailers will have in your overall growth and profitability trajectory. 
because let's face it, we are in the maturing stage. We are not mature yet, but um, most C-suite uh, decision makers, of course, also realize that if they want to achieve their 2030 targets, they cannot longer ignore the online channel and they need to integrate it into a certain extent into their overall planning. And that then also means that you need to zoom out a little bit and think about the individual steps you need to take on how to get that to a reality, uh, which may mean, as we discussed earlier with Lauren as well, that you need to start thinking differently about your portfolio strategy, different price pack architecture, in order to cater to these channels a little bit better and to also ensure that you're cracking the code of how you serve a customer that is very profitability oriented and has no problem in delisting these items that are no longer returning a profit with you. As Amazon calls it, they're famously crapped so they cannot realize <laughs> a profit. Yeah. And I guarantee you, I think 80% of your listeners are currently or in or shortly uh, will have discussions around this topic ahead of their annual vendor negotiation cycle because Amazon is really honing in on that also ahead of the fourth quarter. So Lauren, uh, you, you, I want to put you back in your brand seat and mm -hmm. this is what you're hearing. Um, what are you feeling? Like, <laughs> what would you do? I mean, the first reaction I have is that the way that brands are operating today, you can't just make some tweaks. And, yeah. and make this all better. Like this is a fundamental change in how business is being done. Cross-functional alignment. I feel like I talk about that on every podcast. Basically, that's what you're talking about, Martin, getting everyone in the room, working together. You can't do that in the structures that exist today in large manufacturers. And the incentive structure that exists. The, ex exactly. Yeah. Each function is not metric to be able to be cross-functional. You are in your kind of bucket and you're metric on what you need to think about in your small bucket and it doesn't go across the business. So I just think we've been talking about needing to change the way you operate, being omni-channel, having shared goals, but it is more critical than ever. And I think money is left on the table if you do not change the way you operate because of the way that Amazon and other retailers are changing the way they're operating as well. So I think this takes at a C-suite level, looking at how do we hold each function accountable to being cross-functional, being omni-channel, thinking of the bigger picture, and how do we enable collaboration between functions where sales focuses on sales and marketing focuses on marketing and R&D focuses on R&D. And that just, it just can't be like that anymore. And instead of just slightly tweaking organizational structures, you need to think about hybrid roles, agile methodologies, squad thinking, where you have different functions all in one group working together. So I just think it's such a fundamental change in how business needs to happen. And I'm not sure if that conversation is occurring at the C-suite level. So I'm glad we're talking about it because you can't just bolt on to what you're doing now. Absolutely. And look, you can also start with incremental steps, right? Nobody wants to disrupt the business and the way exactly. that the P&L is structured, for example, or the way how teams are incentivized. Um, you see it also in Europe. Amazon has moved um, from a localized uh, vendor management structure to a regionalized one regional one so you're seeing that there's a european vendor manager now that kind of negotiates on behalf of all of the countries there's one european pnl that they are orienting themselves on primarily even though each market has still a local market pnl now does that mean that 
brands need to create different PL structures on their side? That's a question I often get. Um, often the answer is no, because then you also don't get the commitment any longer from the individual markets if you centralize it at a European level to kind of help you on the operating pieces when it comes to activating your portfolio in certain markets, where of course also the knowledge of the end shopper sits. Um, it's more about really thinking about uh, the incremental steps that you can take as a leader of today in order to raise awareness of this issue and also to ensure that the typical kind of uh, rejections and arguments against that are um, disabled in your organization over time. Um, so when we are talking about um, that the online channel and Amazon often in particular, because it often forms the largest retailer in the set of online retailers for brands, requires different price pack architecture. The, the biggest kind of objection I hear from executives is that they are saying that the upfront costs to develop those items is often too high or too high, and they don't believe that it is um, a good opportunity for them to get their return on investment back. But what they really often don't consider is the opportunity costs in the form of those hidden P&L centers that accumulate when not launching designated price packs for the online channel. I just think about prepping chargebacks, uh, margin compensation investments to avoid Amazon to delist other parts of the portfolio, and especially tougher and lengthier annual vendor negotiations that also bind a lot of kind of resources from your teams when you're not kind of addressing these underlying issues. These are all costs that can very quickly amount to millions and millions of hidden investments that could have been avoided if a designated price pack architecture would have been made part of an integrated strategy for the online channel in the first place. And in light of the current consumer value orientation, here it's really about finding the sweet spot between meeting the contemporary value orientation of those shoppers, as we said, but also looking to differentiate your assortment through pack sizes that meet the profitability demands of the online channel. Um, and it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game because it can actually unfold quite profitably for you as a vendor, um, especially when you're in the CPG space. I think um, looking to differentiate your portfolio, make it less comparable, but really keep the shopper in mind and driving also a unique selling proposition and maybe even innovating only for this channel first and then rolling it out in other channels second can be a very profitable business model, but I don't think we are there yet, but we need to change the awareness and the perception of how those investments unfold because there are a lot of brands that have hundreds of millions in revenue with Amazon, yet they're still negotiating between four and six months. They're interrupting their sales because they have profitability issues and are reluctant to change their portfolio setup. And if you're summing up all of these costs that are the opportunity costs, you will probably arrive at a different calculation of, of the overall equation. And that's Martin, really, I really partnering. Oh, go ahead, Peter. No, you go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I really like talking about baby steps. And I know I, I made this like grand uh, conversation around <laughs> if things need to change. It, it takes time. But what I'm hearing from you, Martin, and I'd love to get your sense of if you agree with this is for any brand listening, that's like, wow, I need to change. I would say your first, the first thing you should focus on is prioritizing your portfolio and really taking a look at it. Like are 20 per, is 20% of your portfolio driving the majority of your sales? Great. Uh, where should we focus our time? Let's look at what's most profitable online, what's most profitable in store and really do that exercise first. Then from there, look across your organization and see who's involved in this decision-making process, all the way from supply chain to sales, and then figure out from there 
how can you hold everyone accountable across that cross-functional team to make sure everybody's marching towards the same goal. And then from there, you can think about changing an org structure. But but if I listen to what we're talking about and think about on my brand side, what you can actually action right now, those are the two areas that I think are the best to start with. Would you agree, Martin? Yeah, 100%. And look, I mean, you can also start as you say, with baby steps by influencing the way that the accounts are getting handled. You don't need to get permission through a different org structure that takes years and years to develop and implement and to to go through all of that change management. I think to make it really practical for all of the listeners, what I would do if I were a commercial leader is to kind of really partner up first and foremost with the finance um, POC um, and to get a really good and granular understanding of the P&L structures and also these hidden costs. Have a mini project with them where you just look at that and get an overview because this quickly gives you an oversight around where those hidden cost centers are, where they originate, and how you can address them. Um, if you're seeing that you're investing currently in trading terms that don't drive any growth or don't drive any return on investment and you would like to reduce them, then it's often a good idea to look at variable handling and shipping cost savings that typically come from your logistics department. And I can guarantee you, if you go to your logistics leaders and supply chain leaders in your business, they will probably have their own opinion about how the operational efficiency is currently working with Amazon and how they would like to improve that in order to have a more lean setup. And this is where I would start. I would just go there and say, look, we have an opportunity to shift investments. How can we partner with you to kind of tap into the opportunities that Amazon can offer us as part of an annual vendor negotiation, whether it is a direct fulfillment, direct import, cross-stock setup, whatever it may be and whatever has actually also a value for your logistics teams. And from there, you have already two kind of um, partners from your finance and your logistics department. And if you're now going on to your media teams and say, look, we can actually elevate um, your return on investment by becoming more smart around how we activate products by looking at a more balanced view of how we can also bring maybe a profitability picture um, into into the mind. Um, then I think you're having a good chance to kind of create these dynamics um, between those functions to get them on board, not maybe formulate key targets with them um, that are very hard for them to commit on because it's out of their realms of, of uh, ownership, but still you get some kind of commitment um, in order to facilitate things that otherwise would only happen in three or five years um, if you mature further. Wow. Uh, So this conversation went in wonderful places that I was not expecting when we started. This idea of the shifting responsibility from Amazon to suppliers, the, the importance of understanding the true costs of this, and that the conversation that we're having should start now because in five years, if it hasn't, you just won't be there, is, I think, a, a clarion call. Uh, we may have to ask you to come back and have a podcast episode on the hidden costs of doing business with Amazon, unless you tell me someone only gets that if they pay you. But uh, if we can get it, uh, we would take it because that to me, you know, helping people sort of flesh out that thinking to have that conversation with their CFO in a really clear way, I think uh, is maybe another added skill we could provide to the community. But I'm not holding you to that, but I'll be back. No, absolutely. I'm happy to (laughs) to dive into it because look, I mean, 
there are always these, uh, I mean, there are different challenges that brands currently have, right? They are commercially uh, relevant, but they are also a lot of times um, rooted deeply in the operational setup they have with other retailers, where Amazon has always only been an add-on. Um, so I think changing that perception and also recognizing that the requirements of certain retailers, um, such as um, an online player as Amazon, are different um, is something where you do not need to set up entirely different processes all the time, but it can make sense to have that conversation internally in order to understand where you can tap into cost efficiencies and where you can also fix certain originating root causes that drive these hidden P&L centers. Um, there's not necessarily a one-fix-for-all, um, but asking these questions is a very good start. And uh, I can only encourage you, if you're not looking as a sales leader um, weekly or at least bi-weekly into your P&L at Amazon, and you only get a very delayed picture, then it's probably a good start to investing into solutions that get you a more real-time overview about how your PL looks like with this online retailer. Um, and also takes into consideration the cash flow perspective, right? So has Amazon paid actually your invoices or have they only paid 80% of them? Because you need that real-time view in order to ensure that you're on top of things. You can also react in a timely manner but you can also drive the right discussions with the resources that are left from an Amazon point of view in the form of buyers, strategic vendor, um, account specialists, and so on. And um, again, the ownership sits on your side. If you take anything away from uh, this podcast today, then um, really that most of the levers are already available to you and uh, that we need to start this shift um, in our mindset um, rather sooner than later. So Martin, thank you so much for for bringing this knowledge to it. This, this kind of conversation is why we created the DSI in the first place uh, and how you know Lauren has grown it over the past few years. And we're just grateful that you're willing to lend us this knowledge to share with our community. And to anybody that uh, is sparked by this as well, Martin Heubel, H-E-U-B-E-L on LinkedIn. Is that okay, Martin? If people reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Of course. All right, great. I just want to make sure they had a path until your return on the hidden costs of uh, Amazon and others in the PL. So, Martin, thank you. Very grateful. Thank you so much for having me, Peter and Lauren. Appreciate it. Thank you, Martin. Thanks again to Martin for his data driven and experience driven prognostication. Always more insights on tap at digitalshelfinstitute.org. So, become a member on our website. Thanks for being part of our community.